invite you to Exodus chapter 15 in your Bibles as we return to our series through the book of Exodus. And as we begin, permit me to retell an old story. I'm getting old enough that I'm retelling these stories over and over and don't realize it. But in light of today's text, it's really irresistible. I know we've heard it before. But several years ago, Pastor Pratt and I attended a clergy meeting here in town. We were chatting around a table when one uh, participant expressed her belief that every religion is equally valid. Apparently, in demonstration of her commitment to this principle, she insisted that she would even attend a Baptist church. In fact, she had attended a Baptist church once. And she explained that as part of her training as a spiritual guide, her school required that students visit different churches, and everybody went to the Baptist church, she said. That got everyone's attention, and so she quickly explained, because Baptists know how to sing. The clergywoman seated to my immediate left then said under her breath, and preach. And right then I wanted to stand on the table and start singing and preaching. It was a great event, a great day. We don't have very high events at these clergy meetings, but that was one of them. It was a great day. That's exactly what I want to be known for. For preaching and singing the praises of God May Eden Baptist Church be ever characterized by the faithful proclamation of the Word of God and by vibrant singing in response to His truth. May that be what characterizes this church. In fact, I think we can say from the Bible, as we look at the text of Scripture on this matter, that the Bible reveals that God wants His people to be a singing people to narrow in on that idea. God wants Eden Baptist Church to be a singing congregation. He does not expect each of us to become skillful musicians, thankfully. He does not equip each of us with a beautiful voice. And some of us put that idea to rest and demonstrate that routinely. That's not what God's asking. That's fine. But when Jesus Christ saves a soul from divine wrath, the Spirit of God infuses that soul with peace and with hope and with joy, which God intends to burst from our hearts in vibrant songs of praise and thanksgiving to Him. Singing is who we are because God has put a song in our hearts. The Apostle Paul says in Colossians 3 and verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Think of it and preach. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom and singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thanksgiving in your hearts to God. We gather today out of a world that is riddled with sin and with suffering. Yet we can sing as we gather here. We don't blind our eyes to the realities of the world around us. But we can gather and genuinely sing from our hearts because our loving Creator reigns supreme in the heavens. Because He has sent Jesus Christ, His Son, to this earth 
And Jesus has died in our place as the sacrificial lamb. He has risen from the dead, defeating death and reigns today from heaven's throne. And this Jesus is coming again. And we know that he will set up his reign and that he has secured the death of death itself. And so we gather fully aware of the trials of this world in our own lives and across the face of this globe, horrifying trials of sin and war and destruction. But we gather with a song because our home is elsewhere. And there's a future that we expect that God will bring about Having been reconciled to God and redeemed out of this fallen world, we gather as a singing body. And it is a body then through song and word that is connected to the people of God through the ages. We look today at a very ancient hymn in Exodus chapter 15. And in this triumphant song, we witness a pattern of God's activity that forms the very basis of our singing And we connect through the ages with Moses and the people of God. Remember in Exodus chapter 14, the people of Israel were delivered from the Egyptian army. Israel is in a very precarious situation. In fact, she panics because the people are set up against the Red Sea with the pursuing Egyptian army equipped with the latest technologies bent on destruction. We remember in chapter 14 that God delivers Israel by splitting the waters and Israel crosses that sea and Pharaoh's army tries in the morning to cross through the same path and God brings the waters down upon the Egyptian army and they are crushed, they are drowned in the sea. It is a great deliverance and I don't know if we could somehow put ourselves back in that setting And imagine what is going through the hearts of the people of Israel as they witness this dramatic rescue by God. It is an evidence of His presence in this world, of His power over creation. And they are thrilled to be delivered by the hand of God. Sense it. Put yourself there. Consider where they must be in their hearts. And what are you going to do in that sitting? I'm sure as those waters came over the Egyptian army, the Israelites stood on the shore on the other side in amazement and awe at the hand of God. And somewhere, somebody began to sing. And there was rejoicing there on the shores of the Red Sea. And we do not know with this song if it was penned right then and there. I think that's pretty unlikely because of how carefully structured it is and how uh, amazing it is in its Hebrew text. We don't catch all of that in the English text. Maybe it was roughed out there at the sea and later refined. We don't really know when this psalm was written precisely. However, the psalm starts with the word then. This then connects directly to these events of rescue at the Red Sea. In the structure, if we could just run down through very quickly, at the beginning we have the heading, Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, and we have a stanza, as we have sung several stanzas of several songs here this morning. This is a song, and we have the first stanza in verses 1 through 6. You'll notice there in verse 5 there is a simile with the word like. They went down into the depths like a stone. And then there is in verse 6 the ending of this stanza, Your right hand, O Lord, your right hand, O Lord. There's repetition there. 
We go to verses 7 through 11, and as we get to the end of that stanza, we see the very same thing. We see a simile that begins just before the ending. They sank like, and then we see in verse 11 the repetition. Who is like you, O Lord? Who is like you? The third stanza comes at verse 12, I believe, and then we work our way down. And once again, verse 16, we see a simile. They are still as a stone with a repetitive phrase and the reference again to Yahweh, the Lord. Till your people, O Lord, till the people pass by. This repeated reference to Lord. Remember those capital letters, L-O-R-D. That is Yahweh. That is the great I Am. That is the one who is with His people. This is a song of praise to Yahweh. And then at verse 18, in Moses' song, we have the ending with the Lord will reign forever and ever. So we have here a very structured Hebrew poem. And it is a poem of praise to God in response to his deliverance of the Israelites. Let's work our way through it. We'll go fairly quickly through this. The goal of a song is to read it. Not to stop too long upon it, but as we do once in a while on Wednesday nights, we'll sing a song. Those of you that know this pattern, we'll stop after having sung a verse or a whole song and we'll talk through it, some of the theology of the hymn. And we're going to do that here briefly this morning then. As we look at stanza one, first of all the heading, Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, to Yahweh, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and the rider he has thrown into the sea. There's no question as to the context here. This is a response again to God's destruction of the Egyptian army. And we have the reference to Yahweh again throughout this psalm. Verse 2, the Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. Those of us who know the Lord as our personal Savior hear these words, and they're fresh, and they're real, and we understand them. Because we know God in this way, just as Israel does here, as Moses does in this song. The Lord is my strength, my song, my salvation, and so I will exalt him. He is my Father's God, Moses says here, tying the experience of the people of Israel back to the promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so we, in our setting here today, tie the praises of God back to the promises of God and to the people of God through the ages. In verse 3, he says, The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is His name. Israel praises God here as a warrior. But this warrior does not battle like a human general. He brings no chariots against Pharaoh's army, and his earthly commander raises nothing but a shepherd's staff against the enemy. This sovereign warrior marshals wind and sea, verse 4. Pharaoh's chariots and his hosts he cast into the sea, and his chosen officers he sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. Well, the critics tell us that this, of course, is a different God than the Christian God. How can we speak of Jesus Christ as the man of war? Well, there's certainly an agenda to this thinking. How do we speak of Jesus Christ as the man of war? It's so blatantly obvious to anyone who's read the text of Scripture. Just read the book of Revelation. 
That's why we refer to Jesus as a man of war. He is a man of compassion and grace and kindness and goodness. But we must come to terms with this truth that the God of the Bible is a God of judgment. If we have a God who knows no judgment, then we're worshiping some other God. The God of Scripture is a God of righteousness and justice, and He brings to end the schemes of those who oppose His holy ways. This is but a precursor of a judging God, a God whose love is based on the fact that He is a God of judgment. This is the God that we must come to know and understand in Scripture, and one by the grace of God whom we can call our Father and the one who loves us with an infinite love. But He is a God of war. He is a God of judgment. He is a God of holiness. And we must understand Him in these terms, as Israel does here. In the second stanza, we read at verse 7, a continuing theme of God's judgment upon Egypt. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. This word send out, just an interesting note, the Hebrew word shalach. It is the Hebrew word used repeatedly in the earlier narratives where God says, let my people go, let them go, release them. We have here the very same word, and I think it's probably used purposefully. Pharaoh refuses to release Israel. God releases his fury against Pharaoh. At the blast of his nostrils, verse 8, the waters piled up, the floods stood up in a heap, the deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. As in chapter 14, we could read these words figuratively, but I think these verbs piled up, stood up in a heap, and congealed support the notion that the waters literally piled up on either side of the Israelites as they passed through the sea. We weren't there. The wording that is used is not explicit to say that this must be the way we read it. But I think this is certainly the way that we would naturally take it. That the waters, in fact, piled up and congealed around the Israelites. Verse 9, as we read on, remembering the splitting of the sea, the enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil, my desire shall have its fill of them, I will draw my sword, my hand shall destroy them. The most powerful army on the planet advances with evil intent against the defenseless Israelites. These slaves are backed up against the sea and its curtains. It is an advance directly against the purposes of God who stands forward and defends His people with His own weapons. Weapons no army on earth can withstand even to this day. Verse 10, You blew with your wind. The sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. And so Moses asks in exaltation of Yahweh, verse 11, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? As verse 6 ends the first stanza on a note of praise to Yahweh for His glorious power, so this stanza ends exalting the Lord. And you'll notice there the phrase, He is majestic in holiness. The song exalts in the uniqueness and the purity of God. 
God is just. He is right to execute judgment against those who refuse to yield to His sovereign rule. Those who steal their will against God always harm God's people and always introduce death and chaos and torment into the world. And they will never stop until they rule the universe. And so it is God's prerogative as the Creator and His righteous duty to crush such rebellion. And He does. And His people sing. As we consider these first two stanzas, We see that they lift high the majesty and the holiness of God. And as we seek to sing as an assembly, we look for songs that do the same. I had a look at what is being prepared for next week, certainly with what we have already sung here this morning, but what is being prepared for next week. And as I look through those songs, there is song after song after song that by the grace of God we will lift up, that speak of His glory and His majesty and His greatness. We want to present such songs to the Lord as sacrifices of praise in our assembly, to say that God is great and greatly to be praised. And as those songs are provided for us week in and week out, some do better than others, certainly, There is certainly an artistic element of bringing them together and understanding how we put them together. But let me say to all of us as we sing, use these songs. Use them. Don't just listen to them. Don't just sing a tune. But use them as a means of praising the name of God. We put out what we can to say, here are songs that exalt His name. We must from our hearts lift those songs in praise to Him. They're there for that reason. He is majestic in holiness, and may we lift up words that magnify and exalt His name. More on that in a moment. But let's look at that next phrase. Awesome in glorious deeds and doing wonders. There at the end of verse 11. Awesome in glorious deeds and doing wonders. You know, one reason that truly born-again believers know how to sing is this. They believe in a miracle-working God. I think that is utterly essential to true song, to believe in a miracle-working God. I mean, put yourself in your mind's eye, just kind of transport yourself somewhere to another church in another place. As we land in this congregation, we learn that it is what is referred to as a liberal congregation. That is, it embraces liberal theology. There are no miracles in the Bible. All are explained away. There's no virgin birth. There is no resurrection. There is no ascension. There is no second coming. There is no heaven. And let me assure you, there's no song. There might even be beautiful music in this place in some respects, but there's no song coming from the hearts of those people. There is a certain reservation, a certain dullness, A certain stiltedness and formality that will never go away because there's really no song. Faith in a miracle-working God is indispensable to salvation. And salvation is indispensable to joyous singing. We must believe what the Bible says. As a Bible-preaching church, we can then truly sing with vibrant joy. There is an empty tomb. 
that was vacated by a Savior who's healed the sick and raised the dead, who stilled the storm, who ascended to heaven and promises to return in power and glory. We have a song to sing when we have a miracle-working God. That is the God of Moses. That is the God of Israel. For them, it wasn't a matter of intricate theology to figure out if the world can really sustain miracles or not. It was right there in front of their eyes. They knew this God was a miracle-working God, and they burst into song in exultation and praise. Stanza 3, verse 12. You stretched out your right hand, the earth swallowed them. Once again, returning to this theme of God's defeat of the Egyptian army. The earth swallowed them. You say, I thought they drowned in the sea. Well, this earth swallowed them is a, just simply a, a common phrase that is used to say uh, that they entered the realm of death. Uh, Sheol is sometimes referred to as the earth swallowing an individual. They, and they died is the simple point. It's just a poetic way of putting it. Moses turns now to consider God's relationship with Israel in something of a unique development here in the song. Verse 13, you have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. In verse 13 and following through to verse 17, we have a pretty significant problem with the Hebrew text, and that is how to take these verbs. It's not worth my explaining here at this point how Hebrew works on this point, but you can take these verbs as either past or future. And it's very legitimate to do one or the other. If we take them all as in a future tense, as the NIV does, then it is all prophetic, all looking to what will take place. The people will hear of this event. You will lead your people to their holy abode in the land of Canaan. And that works very nicely. The problem is, at least as far as making sense of the psalm, the problem is, is it doesn't work out so well with the grammar. So if we translate, as the ESV does and as other translations do, in a past tense, then we would have to say that these references are prophetic or that the psalm was written sometime later and maybe in its final form was edited to update the current situation. Well, you know, this will make sense as we work our way through in just a moment. My own preference is to take these verbs, as the ESV does, as a past tense, and what may be understood as what one has referred to as realized eschatology. That is, you refer to future events that are coming, but you refer to them as if they're already a done deal. And that is an appropriate way to translate certain passages of Scripture. So in a sense, we may have something of a prophetic idea taking place here of what will happen. God will bring us to our holy abode. It says here at the end of verse 13, You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. Well, they're just in the sands of the Red Sea on the shore. They're not in Palestine yet at this point, in Canaan. So we may look at this as future events that are seen as realized. Why? And this is where it gets exciting to think if this is, in fact, the way we should take it, because it's a done deal. Think of what God has done. He has brought us out of Egypt without firing a shot. We haven't even pulled a bowstring, and we have been freed from Egypt. And we have not done anything to defend ourselves here against the Red Sea, but we are free. God will keep His word, and we will come back. 
to the promised land. They know it's coming. And so, verse 14, the peoples have heard. They tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Again, it may not have chronologically happened yet at this point, but it will. And let me also add that news would travel quite quickly up the coast and toward Philistia. So the people that Israel will encounter in their journeys to come to the promised land are going to hear about what God has done. Those in Philistia will be seized with fear. They will tremble. Verse 15, Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm. They are still as a stone. Joshua chapter 2, remember we hear of Rahab 40 years later, who says, I know the Lord has given you this land, and our people tremble with fear. That's pretty impressive 40 years later. But what is far more impressive is 1 Samuel chapter 4 and verse 8. Hundreds of years later, the Ark of the Covenant comes onto the battlefield. The Philistines begin to have problems as it appears that God is fighting for Israel. And what do they say? Those gods that split the Red Sea are here in our land. And they trembled with fear. Hundreds of years later. This news report of God delivering the Israelites and stilling the sea, put dread fear in the hearts of the enemies of God. And these people, the Philistines, the Edomites, the Moabites, are all around the center of the land that Israel will possess. And then the Canaanites, the people themselves, they are as still as a stone. That is, they are shocked with dread fear. And... Verse 16, till your people, O Lord, pass by, till the people pass by whom you have purchased, you will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. Again, very possibly a prophetic reference to Jerusalem, but at least to the holy land, to the mountain of God Using this poetic liberty, Moses looks at the conquest of the promised land and as if the enemies will stand there frozen in their tracks in fear. Now the reality of it all is a little bit more intense than that, isn't it? It'd be really nice if Israel walked into Edom and then into Moab and then crossed the Jordan to find that in Canaan everybody stood still as frozen in their tracks with fear. In the big picture, in the big scheme of things, that's what happened. In the nitty-gritty of life, it was a little tougher than that. So we have here in the poetic form what is really something of a bird's-eye view. You could look down from an airplane, for instance, to illustrate and see some farmers that are harvesting a wheat field with their combines. And as you see them making their patterns across this field, you can see it looks so smooth and easy and obvious what they're doing, and that field is obviously going to be reaped very soon. But land the plane and come down, and you breathe the dust, and you feel the heat, 
and you sense the fatigue on the part of those farmers. When it comes down to the nitty-gritty of life, it's hard. It's difficult. But when we stand up from the perspective of God, though He's in the nitty-gritty with us, He can also stand up from His perspective and see this is going to happen. This victory is going to be won. God will bring the Israelites into the land of Canaan. It is going to involve all kinds of heartache and trial and war and difficulty. But from a poetic sense, from a bird's eye view, from a divine sense, the enemies of Israel are as good as frozen in their tracks. And Israel will take the promised land as her own, as God has provided And so Moses' psalm ends with the Lord will reign forever and ever. There's a reference there to his abode, his sanctuary, which his hands have established and where he will reign forever and ever. It's thrilling for us on this side of this hymn to know we're not dealing here just with a song. And it's certainly not a song that has passed out of date. We're dealing here with a song that is revealing the mind and will and purposes of God. And so as we look back in time, we can fill this up with the theology of the text of Scripture and know there is a place where God set His abode. There is a place where where God's glory filled a temple. There is a place on that holy hill of Mount Zion where Jesus Christ will return and will reign over the earth. He will reign forever and ever. This is certainly a messianic reference. And as Jesus spoke of going back through the law and the prophets in Luke chapter 24 and explaining to them what the scriptures had to say about himself, perhaps he landed here. The sanctuary of the Lord that his hands have established, his abode where the Lord, Yahweh, will reign forever and ever. There's a historical recap here at 1519. And when the horses of Pharaoh with his chariots and his horsemen went into the sea, the Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them, but the people of Israel walked on dry ground in the midst of the sea. And then we have a second song. We'll go through this quite quickly, but the song of Miriam at verse 20. Then Miriam the prophetess The sister of Aaron took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing. And Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. You remember back in chapter 2, verse 4, we have little Moses in the Nile River. And who's standing on the banks? We have this sister. Right, who's standing on the banks, maybe Miriam, maybe another sister. The text doesn't tell us. But the whole thing starts with the little infant boy and his sister on the banks of the Nile. It's interesting, isn't it? We've come now to this place. The little boy has grown up, has delivered his people and his sisters on the banks of another body of water, rejoicing in the greatness and deliverance of God. I think Moses does that very purposefully in the structure of this book in order to lead us into the next section, which is the wilderness wanderings, and bring to close this account of God's deliverance of his people from Egypt. From this point on, Egypt is past. It is no longer a threat to Israel. It is now the source of singing. 
And here we have this woman standing on the banks of the Red Sea, dancing and singing for joy to the Lord and saying just what Moses has said, sing to the Lord for he has triumphed gloriously, the horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. We have a woman singing here to the Lord. It begins to reveal to us again the distinct privileges that we have and the uniqueness of our own situation. In Iran, in Afghanistan today, women are not permitted to sing in mixed audiences or on the radio or on television. And there are other many restrictions throughout the Islamic world upon women singing. In fact, there are people who die, they are executed for violations musically within Islam. Now there's a good degree of reasoning in all of this. Islam is woefully inferior to the West in the development of musical expression, and most Muslims have concluded that Western music is sensual and corrupt, and so most legislate against women singing to avoid seduction and moral degradation. Well, unless you're eating right out of Satan's hand, all you've got to do is watch a commercial here and there once in a while to see a young woman of the West singing, and you'll understand what the Muslims mean about seduction and corruption. Musical sounds can indeed seduce hearers sexually. Musical sounds can encourage despair and rebellion and all that goes with it. If only more Christians would recognize this point as much as does much of the Islamic world. And sadly, we only need to look at the covers of CDs in Christian bookstores to see Christian artists who are dressing only a step less seductively than the siren voices of the world. We are taking the marketing of a godless culture and we're putting song to it. So I sympathize with the hardline Muslims on this point. I understand what they're saying. There is a potential for seduction that is significant and real. But what Islam does not understand is, I should say as a sideline, one, that Western music has been largely hijacked from its earlier origins, but beyond that, what they don't understand is that men, women, and children are made in the image of God and are called by their Creator to blend their voices in triumphant and holy songs of praise. We do not have the gathering of the men to sing and the gathering of the women to sing in another place, but we gather as men and women, children made in the image of God to lift up our voices in the uniqueness of the blend of male and female here in the assembly. We go right back to Miriam on the banks of the Red Sea. We go right back to the text of Scripture that has numerous songs of women who, tr who in the triumph of God, respond in singing and rejoicing in the presence of the Lord. There's a heritage here. and Let me lead from that point into this idea. When we look to the past, we need to understand in our singing that we have a distinct heritage. Do we appreciate the rich heritage and profound privilege that is ours to enjoy music in the church? This has been a hard-won privilege. We gather on Sundays. If we didn't sing, everybody would say, what in the world is going on? Why didn't we sing today? That was really weird. 
But do we understand that there are generations and generations, in fact, centuries of time where the vast majority of God's people never sang in church? That was done by the priests. That was done by the leaders. Some trained elite. There's a long story here, and it goes back to these earlier biblical texts and works its way through the text of Scripture. When we gather as the people of God and lift our voices in song, we join this long heritage of people who have marshaled music to proclaim the holiness of the power and the love of God and have permitted that song to be put in the voices of common people. To this very day, Islamic scholars debate whether or not music is legitimate. The Bible knows nothing of that debate. And we are the richer for it. As I mentioned, church history develops a very long battle along these lines. I think in the biblical text, there's no question that the early churches of Jesus sang songs. I mentioned that passage earlier in Colossians. There's a command for us to sing. And there's no reference there to who sings, that it's just the elite or just the men. We're all as a church to sing together. The early churches sang, but there was some corruption that took place, and the voices of the people were silenced, and there was the elite who began to sing this, all the songs in the Roman church, particularly and certainly in the Eastern Orthodox Church. That was not true. I think there's evidence of separatist groups who continued to sing and allow people to sing. But certainly that became more and more the case as history moved toward the Reformation time. And with the coming of the Reformation in particularly, and it is entirely providential, but I rejoice right now before you that Martin Luther's hymn was chosen for today. I should have thought of that, but I didn't. That was providential that we sang his hymn, but he did perhaps more than any one individual to put songs in the mouth of the common people. And we just take this for granted. You can imagine, if after centuries of silence, as the people began to sing songs of praise to God, the joy that was in their hearts. To this day, music has a highly restricted and stilted presence in Islam particularly with respect to women. Buddhism views life as suffering and salvation as nothingness. What kind of music do you think that's going to produce? It's that life is suffering and salvation is nothingness. Its music is affected by a sound of unmistakable despair and meaninglessness. Hinduism has a long history of music, but with its emphasis on unity and polytheism, it produces a disharmonious and linear music. Visitors to a Hindu temple will not hear joyous and harmonious chords reverberating off the walls, but will be probably more impressed with the clanging and tinkling of chimes and cymbals to awaken the deities and ward off the evil spirits. But as post-Reformation Christians, we enjoy a rich heritage of harmonized songs that recognize the presence of suffering and evil, but pulsate with the joyous chords of hope and triumphant resolution. We don't have many of us a clue of what we're really doing when we sing and what we have. We enjoy a litany of songs that reflect the diversity and the unity of the triune God and the triumph of the Son over sin and Satan 
and death. So let us sing as we look to the past. And in the present, we need to strive for worship in spirit and in truth. I think that Exodus 15 reminds us that our singing and praise will rise no higher than our knowledge of God. It is the truth of God revealed in Scripture. It is faithful biblical preaching that should both ground and ignite the musical expressions of a church. Our songs will pulsate with hope and meaning when our hearts overflow with the zeal of knowing God. That's what Exodus 15 brings to us and puts before our eyes. Worship is about God. It's not about man. It's not about us. It is about Him. He is our song. And it's a song that God has put in our heart. I don't expect the unbeliever to understand our songs. I think it is absolutely inexplicable to ask an unbeliever what they want to hear and to give it to them. They don't know the Lord. How could they possibly know what God would be pleased with? How would they possibly know what a joyful heart would desire to express? It's about God. He is the master and the sustainer. He is enthroned on our praises then as we in corporate unity respond in this privilege to exalt His greatness and His goodness in a fallen world. Psalm 22 and verse 3, He is enthroned on our praises. May we create a beautiful throne to lift high His name. Such songs will rise no higher than our personal relationship and knowledge of God and holy zeal that we have to serve Him. A church cannot provide worship for people. It's not something you package and hand out. It's not something you present. The worship comes from us as we know God personally and revel in His presence and sing with joy in our hearts because of who we know Him to be. And as that knowledge and zeal are assessed, may Eden Baptist Church be characterized as a singing church. May this congregation be a singing congregation. May our orientation always be the singing of the congregation. For we gather together, some with skill, some unskilled. But we all gather as the people of God to sing one song. And let me for a moment then just look to the future. Our rich heritage, our present agenda to lift high God and His name and our future. Exodus 15 is not an isolated personal victory. This is a celebration of the work of a God who controls history. He plants his footsteps on the sea. He rides upon the storm. The God of Exodus 15 is the master, creator, and sustainer, and author of history. For Israel, that meant at this point a deliverance from Egypt. It meant the conquest of Canaan. God keeps His promises and He delivers Israel and they rejoiced in this truth. But there's a larger picture here and there are themes of the patterns of working of God through the ages that we are to see and it's to resonate with us. What's the bigger picture? We've been in our own slavery, haven't we? We've been in the bondage of sin as people. We have been subject to the destructive intent of Satan. We have been destined for an eternity in hell. 
But we rejoice in the greater deliverance than even the Red Sea deliverance. Jesus comes to defeat the power of Satan, 1 John 3 and verse 8. He came to defeat Satan, that text says. And he came to pay the penalty of sin. He conquered death. We have a vast desert of trial to pass through in this life. But God is sovereign. Death has been defeated. World restoration has begun. And one day Jesus will reign from Jerusalem. The goal is that all nations will sing this song. That's what God is working to bring about, is that all peoples will gather and will sing His songs of praise. The connections are unmistakable. Let me put it to rest in Revelation chapter 15. And notice this connection. Revelation 15 in verse 3. As we look to the future in the book of Revelation, we see here a song that is recorded. In Revelation 15 and verse 3, we read that they sing the song of Moses the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. The song of Moses, still alive in eternity, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God, the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. We gather on the Lord's day in our weakness and our frailty. We gather as sinners in the need of mercy. But we also gather as the victorious emancipated servants of the conquering Lamb. We gather knowing that one day we will enter the presence of the Lamb on His holy hill and we will sing with the people of old the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb. And so we gather to sing as an act of joyous homage and anticipation every time we come together to sing. And so may Eden Baptist Church ever be a singing people because we know the Lord, we know the future, and we place our hope and our confidence in His saving power. May we ever be a singing people. Let's bow for prayer. Father, help us to this end. We ask this fearful question in our culture what kind of music brings honor to you? And we're sure that we do not know always. But we ask the question because we know that worship is about you. And I pray your hand of protection upon this church, your guidance into the future as the culture around us changes and as we change and need to. We certainly don't sing like the Jews sang at the Red Sea. We've made adjustments. And I pray, God, that as we make those adjustments, that we will do so in a way that honors your word and is sensitive to our culture in right and godly ways. I pray that you'll protect us and guide us. But, Father, no two of us will ever agree on every issue of music. But I pray, Father, 
that what takes place in our hearts would be a song of joy to the Lord. And that if we are listening to songs and music that is taking away the joy of the Lord, I pray that we'd bury them with our sins and walk away. I pray that whatever we hear, we will hear to your glory and honor. Certainly there are different contexts and different kinds of songs to hear in certain contexts. But Father, may we always do so for, out of honor to you. I pray that you will steer our musical choices, that you will protect our church and help us to lift up here songs that bring honor to you within our context. And I pray, Father, for that day when all the music questions will be resolved and we will stand and hear what real singing is. But God, on that day, when you give us new voices, and you give us a knowledge of music we've never had in this world. And in that day, when the harmony is perfect and the melody is new. Having learned to sing a new song, I pray, God, that it would be one that wells up within our hearts. That we would know what it means to rejoice in your presence. And I pray that as a church we would always take seriously and energetically our responsibility to praise you in spirit and in truth. And Father, there may be some among us here today who have no such song in their heart, who don't know what it is to be thrilled in your presence and filled with joy and longing. I pray that you would point that one to the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and draw anyone who is separated from that saving grace into the light today, we ask, according to your will and for your glory. And may we sing with all of our hearts to your praise until you take us home and teach us how to really sing. Help us here as we plow the field. We long for the gates of heaven and the courts of praise. Bring that day in your grace and help us now to be faithful. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.